Well, as most of you know, Kyle has been leading us verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians since we began meeting together. And so in his absence, I'm going to continue uh, trekking through Ephesians with us. And so we're going to go through the first 14 verses of chapter 5 that you just heard read over you. And at first glance, it probably sounds like a lot of information, but I really don't think that it is. I think what Paul was trying to communicate in those 14 verses, part of what he was trying to communicate is simply that God has an eternal identity for all of us who are in Christ. And that Paul's that the identity that God has given us has with it a purpose that we're supposed to live for. And so with that in mind, I just want to ask you a question. And that's one that you've answered many times throughout your life probably. And that's simply, who are you? Who do you tell people that you are? Usually whenever we tell people who we are, we tell them based on something that gives our lives significance. Whatever it is that we feel like brings us the most value, whatever we feel brings us the most significance, that's how we tell people who we are. And so a lot of times it will sound something like, I am this person's husband or wife, or I have this many children, or maybe this is what I do for a living, this is my job. Or maybe for those of you who are still in school, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm studying for. But we all have something in our life or some things in our life that is what we define ourselves by. It's what we have rooted ourselves in to identify us. And so as I was thinking about that question, preparing for this sermon, I thought an even better question, a one layer deeper question is, who do you believe that you are? Who do you think that you are? And we're in church, so everyone most likely has a churchy answer rolling around in their mind. But look at your life. Take a step back. Look at your life and see what is it that takes up the most of your thoughts. What is it that you work towards? Where does your money go? What affects your emotions, positively or negatively, more than anything else? These questions will lead you uh, to be able to see what it is that you put your identity in. And so what's your identity in? So then the next question, a more difficult question is, who would you be if you lost that? Who would you be if you lost that job? Who would you be if you didn't have your spouse? Or maybe if your children, something tragic happened and you no longer had your children, what, what significance would you have? What would your purpose in life be? Sadly, for most of us, I think that we would be lost. We wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't know what our purpose is. Why, why are we even here anymore? And so for that reason, I think that what we're looking at today has a lot of practical importance for our lives, because what God's about to tell us is who we are, his given identity to us, and his purpose that he's given to us. And so I want us to lean in and just look at Ephesians through that lens. And so because this is so important, identity is so important, Paul begins chapter five by telling us of our true identity. Our true identity is that we're children of God. And then he tells us, right after that what our purpose is and that's to imitate Christ and so let's read verses uh, 1 and 2 together and then just consider those by themselves for a second it says therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God you see the next several verses that Paul is going to write he's going to be tackling some difficult topics. He's going to be saying a few do nots, a a few prohibitions, things that are going to be more difficult. So he's reminding his audience, this is who you are. 
And you see, identity is so important to us because whatever our identity is determines our purpose. And whatever our purpose is, that determines everything else about our lives. Whether you realize it or not, whatever your identity is determines your purpose. And your purpose determines the goals that you strive for, the priorities that you set, what you do for fun, what you do not do for fun. Everything stems from your purpose, which is rooted in your identity. And so Paul's about to tell us, listen, you've got this identity, you've got this purpose. Don't live like people who have another identity. Don't live like people who have another purpose. Your life should not look the same. And so what we're about to do is we're about to look at those verses. But before we do, I want us just to consider what role these do not verses play or should play uh, within our lives. What role they do play within biblical Christianity. These are a little bit more prohibitive in nature. They're prohibitions, so to speak. But I think that there's a right way and a wrong way to, to view the do not verses. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, if I went to a big city and just asked the average secular person, the average unbeliever, what is it that defines a Christian? What do you think they would say? I think, sadly, the majority of them would give us this long list of things that we're against. They would say, well, Christians are against gay marriage, they're against abortion, they're against drunkenness, they're against sex outside of marriage, they're against, they're against, they're against. And a lot of them, I don't think, would be able to tell us what we're for. And that's a problem, because the things that we are for as Christians are going to last into eternity. While the things that we are opposed, the things that we're against, they're going to perish when Jesus returns. And so why do we want to spend all of our time and energy focusing on the things that we oppose when that's what's going to perish? Now, we're going to see in Ephesians 5 that we are supposed to shine a light on the darkness. We are supposed to identify wickedness and evil as wickedness and evil. But of equal or even more importance, Paul is going to tell us that there are certain things that we're supposed to be doing. There are certain things, not only are we supposed to have passive faith and not do certain things, we're supposed to have active faith and be intentional with our lives and do others. And those are the things that we want to be known for. So we see evidence of this throughout Ephesians. You probably haven't noticed it, but as Kyle has led us through Ephesians... He has spent the bulk of his time talking about positive things, affirmations. He's told us about our Heavenly Father. He's told us about our glorious Savior. He's told us about this new identity that we have as children of God. He's told us about our new purpose, which is to imitate Christ, be ambassadors of Christ. In fact, he's talked very, very little about what we're not supposed to do. And that's not because uh, Kyle has just been fluffing up the message. It's because that's what Paul's been talking about. From Ephesians 1.1 until Ephesians 5.2, Paul has actually spent 100 verses at that point. And less than 10 of them are spent talking about what we are not supposed to do. Less than 10 of those verses, less than 10% of what Paul has said this, up until this point in Ephesians, is talking about prohibitions. He spent all of his focus and his time telling us who we are in Christ, what our purpose is, who our Heavenly Father is, who our Savior is. And so with that in mind, I just want us to consider what we're about to see and remember that the book of Ephesians was written more or less to say, this is who you are, so live like it. And it's only in these couple of small sections where Paul seems to take a step back and say, and because you are children of God, don't live like those who are still his enemies. Don't live like those who don't share your identity. So let's keep that in mind as we leave here today. So we come to chapter 5. 
And like I said, Paul's just spent four chapters telling us about all of these positive things about our Father in Heaven, our Savior, our identity, our purpose. And so it seems fitting that one more time he gives us a blunt reminder in verse 1, imitate your Father. A blunt reminder. (laughs) Every little boy, if you think about it, every little boy thinks that his dad can beat up everybody else's dad on the playground, right? Every little boy thinks that his dad is the strongest, the fastest, smartest, funniest person in the world. Regardless how true or how false it is, that's what that little boy believes, for a little, at least for a period of time. And so during that period of time in his life, he's going to do everything he can to imitate his dad. Because his dad, to him, is the most perfect person in the world. I remember the way that I used to do that whenever I was growing up. I would wear my dad's cowboy boots around our house. Now, it didn't matter that the cowboy boots went up to my mid-thighs. I thought that I looked like my dad. I was imitating my dad, who I looked up to so much, and so it was great for me. For the same reason, I started drinking Diet Coke whenever I was very young. I didn't care, I didn't care about my figure. I wanted to drink what my dad drank. Similarly, and this is one that bothers Brittany to this day, I remember that my dad used to sit down, and when he was sitting, he would bounce his leg. He had too much energy, I guess, and he would bounce his leg. And so I remember intentionally beginning that habit. And so to this day, if I'm sitting around and I have too much energy, I'm bouncing my leg, and it bothers Brittany. And so she will, if it's bothering her, shaking her chair, or if it's distracting her, she'll put her hand on my thigh, and she'll cut her eyes, like, stop it. <laughs> and I say, okay. And then I stop for a minute, and then I'll, I'll inevitably start again. Uh, But I started that by imitating my dad. And so Paul's reminding us here in the very beginning of chapter 5, listen, your father, your heavenly father is the God of the universe. He really is more perfect than every other being in the world. He's faster, stronger, smarter. He loves you more than anyone else in the world. He really can completely destroy anything that comes against him and anything that comes against his children. He loves you. And so from there, Paul tells us how we imitate our Father. Verse 2 tells us, walk as Christ walked. We imitate our Father by imitating Jesus. And this isn't new to Paul. In Romans 8, 29, Paul wrote, For those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, that was God's purpose in adopting us. That was God's purpose in saving us, was so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. A lot of times, or most of the time, sadly, I think it's true that Christians, myself included, we think of our salvation in the way that it affects us. What does it mean to me? It means I don't have to go to hell. It means that I have this heavenly father from whom all blessings flow, who provides for me, who protects me, who takes care of me. And all of these things are good. And all of them are true, but they're not the point. Scripture tells us that the reason that we are saved is so that we would bring glory to God. And the way that we bring glory to God is by being conformed to the image of Christ. And so you might ask, well, how does being conformed to the image of Christ glorify God? And I think there are several ways to answer that. But for today's purposes, I think 2 Corinthians 5.20 kind of gives us the best answer, and it's, Paul was writing and he said, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we can bear his name and act as a good ambassador for him in the midst of this lost world. God wants to use our lives so that we can seek the lost in the same way that Jesus sought them. 
God wants to use our lives to conform us to Christ's image so that we will appeal to the world on his behalf so that sinners will be reconciled to him through Jesus in the same way that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And that's why Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Now, Paul wasn't crucified with Jesus. We know that. What, Jesus, what Paul was saying here was that when he put his faith in Jesus, when he fully submitted his life to Jesus and began living for the kingdom of, God, of Christ and of God, Paul said, my identity didn't matter at that point. My preferences, my comforts, my plans, the things that I was working towards, all of those things made no matter anymore. Now it was all about Jesus. It was about his purpose. It was about his plans. It was about his desires. It was about his goals. And scripture tells us that when we believe in Jesus, when we truly believe in Jesus, when we've been adopted by God as his sons and daughters, that same thing happens to us. When I believed in Jesus... My identity made no matter anymore. At that point, it's all about Christ. It's all about his mission and his goals. So you see, Scripture's clear when it tells us about our God-given identity and our God-given purpose while we're here on earth. And so I tried to scrunch all of that down into one sentence that we can keep in the back of our mind as we go through the next 12 verses of Ephesians 5. That sentence is this. We are... Children of God who seek to imitate our Heavenly Father by acting as ambassadors of Christ in the midst of this lost world. I'm going to say it again. This is true of all of us who have believed in Jesus. We are children of God who seek to imitate our Heavenly Father by acting as ambassadors of Christ in the midst of this lost world. If your identity is in anything other than that, your identity is in something that will be taken from you. If your identity is anywhere else, it's in something that's perishing right now. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be five, ten years from now, but it's going to be taken away from you. And then what will you be left with? So we come to verses 3 through 5. This is where Paul begins talking about the, the things that we're not supposed to do. If we are children of God, we're supposed to live with a specific purpose, which is to be ambassadors of Christ. And so Paul's going to take a moment and say, and and ambassadors of Christ do not live like this. And so he's going to give us three categories of sin that are present in almost identical lists to the one we're about to see throughout several of his other epistles. And because Paul and God thinks it's so important to spend three verses in this one chapter talking about it and talks about it in several other books that Paul's written, I think it's appropriate for us just to take a moment and... Consider each of them on their own merit and consider what they are and and what they mean. So let's start in verse 3 and we're going to read through verse 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. Paul is saying don't even joke about these things. They are offensive to God and they should be offensive to his children. Don't even joke about them. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you can be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, he has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So Paul begins with sexual immorality, which seems appropriate since we're in America and it seems like our new motto is do whatever you want with whomever you want. Just don't question anyone else's preference, right? That's kind of the mantra that we're living by right now. We've begun to worship sex in a a way that 
identifies people as though their, their sexual preferences is the epitome of who they are, is that it is the identifying factor of them. And that's why we don't say things like he's a person who struggles with or even fully enjoys homosexuality. No, he is a homosexual. We have, we have elevated his sexuality to be the defining point of him. And, it, and that's simply not true. Sexuality is a part of us. It's something that God has given us, but it does not define who we are. Now, to be clear, sex is good. It's a gift from God, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's just a gift. And so Tim Keller wrote about exalting gifts of God to a place where they shouldn't uh, be. And he said, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and your meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than you build it on God. Now, I want to take a second and just Paul's talking about sexual immorality and make sure that we understand that that, that that idea is true in a lot of other areas of our lives. We can, we can elevate our marriage above God. We can elevate our occupation above God. We can elevate our children above God. And so we've got to be careful with that. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's elevating anything to above God. So on this topic of sexual immorality... The secular world tends to tell us that we're, we're far out of date. We're basing our current views on something that was written 2,000 years ago to a people group all the way across the world. And so it has no relevance here, is what they would say. They would say that, sure, the Ephesians accepted those words, and those were good for the times, but we progressed, right? <laughs> we're, we're smarter and, and more cultured, and, and those words just don't mean anything anymore. But all that argument really does is it betrays an ignorance to the people to whom Paul was writing. You see, the Ephesians obviously lived in Ephesus. Ephesus was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis drew people from all over the world because it was so magnificent. And who Artemis was, she was the Greek goddess of prostitution, sexual immorality, and fertility. And so people would come from all over the world to do business in Ephesus because of this great temple. And they would go to the temple to worship Artemis with the temple prostitutes. And, and everything that happened in that temple would overflow into the streets, would overflow into the culture. It wasn't something that was taking place in the back alleys and in the, in the corners somewhere. It was something that was celebrated. It was something that they literally worshipped. Yet Paul still wrote these words and he still said those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I think Paul knew that it would be offensive and he knew people would try to dismiss what he was saying. And so that's why he followed that with verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. It's almost as if Paul was trying to say, listen, you've got to know the truth. You have to stand firm in the truth. Hold to the truth. Because society is going to try to dissuade you. Society is going to tell you that these words don't mean anything. But this is God's word. Stand firm in it. And so as our culture is telling us that these words don't mean anything. That they were written for people somewhere else in another time. I'm, I'm telling you, stand firm. These are the words of God. God is eternal. He is not bound to a place or a time. And what he says is true always. So hold to these words. 
So then another specific sin category that Paul addresses is covetousness, which if we consider it next to the temple of Artemis and everything that happened there, covetousness sounds pretty minor. (laughs) But I think that we should resist the temptation to minimize covetousness. Because you see in verse 5, Paul equates covetousness with idolatry. He says, or the one who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, anyone who's been around the Bible for any, any amount of time, they probably know that God has destroyed entire nations throughout the Old Testament for the sin of idolatry. And not only that, he allowed his own people to be taken over by other armies and taken into captivity for years on end because of idolatry. So if covetousness and idolatry are somehow related, covetousness must be a big deal to God. God didn't act favorably towards the sin of idolatry. He treated it very, very, very severely. So if that's present in covetousness, we need to understand it. And so I'm almost certain that you're thinking the same thing that I thought whenever I first started kind of digging through these verses. How is covetousness and idolatry related? It's, I'm not worshiping what I covet. And I would say that's right. You're not worshiping what you're coveting. But what happens when you covet is you actually begin to worship yourself. It's self-worship. It's a form of self-worship. Because what we say to God, what our heart says to God when we covet is, God, you don't know what's good for me as well as I know what is good for me. We say, God, you know this much, yet I know this much. And any time that we elevate our knowledge or our position above that of God, what do we put ourselves in? We put ourselves in the position of God. So we're elevating ourselves to a place of worship and idolatry. And then if that's not bad enough, we begin to defame God's name. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 80, or in Psalm 84:11, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, in New Testament terms, those who walk uprightly would be the righteous. And the righteous are those who have believed in Jesus. The scripture tells us that we have received Christ's righteousness. And so what scripture tells us is that God does not withhold anything good from the righteous. And what my heart's attitude says about God, whenever I covet something that someone else has, be it money or a house or status, maybe a family, children, When I covet what I don't have, what my heart's attitude says to God is, God, I know that your word says that you won't withhold anything good from me, but you have. God, you are a liar. So when we covet, we exalt ourselves above him, and then we defame his name all in one foul swoop. So we can't allow covetousness to remain in our lives. And I think the way that we get covetousness out of our lives is seen in verse 4, where Paul says, But instead, let there be thanksgiving, a thankful heart, one that is gratitude, one that has gratitude to God, is a heart that's content with what it has. Contentment, if we have contentment in our lives, we're not going to have covetousness. They They can't intermingle. A covetous heart is not content. A content heart will not be covetous. The two together would be like a square circle. It can't happen. And so what we have to do is we have to be intentional about 
thanking God for what he has given us and thanking him for what he has not given us. We've got to be content. And so finally, Paul comes to impurities. And and impurity is basically a generic term for any persistent sin patterns that might be in our life. Anything that, um, that we allow to remain in our lives, most of them are probably smaller and they probably wouldn't be known or noticed by anyone outside of our close circle. Uh, There are things such as lying, selfishness, bitterness, lust, greed, uh, drunkenness, racism. That's a big one around here. Um, I know that none of us know any racists. I know none of us have any racist tendencies. We just sometimes tend to generalize entire groups of people who don't look like us and who aren't from where we're from. And then we look at them skeptically or with suspicion. But we wouldn't call ourselves racist, right? Guys, that's sin. And we can't allow that to remain in our lives because that's a foothold that Satan uses to destroy us. Psalm, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us about the devil and tells us about Satan's character. It says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's nature is that of predatory nature. It's a nature that wants to devour you. We've all seen the stories on the news of the person who brought home a lion to live with them, and it didn't end well, right? But you see, those people, they weren't dumb. They didn't bring a full-grown lion home with them because they're smarter than that. It always starts with a cub. They bring a cub home, and they put a cub in a pen in the backyard or on some land that they have. They don't tell anybody about it because it's illegal, so really only their immediate family and their closest friends know about this cub. And then they feed the cub and they play with the cub and the cub runs around and their mistake has been that they have forgotten that that cub has within it the same predatory nature that that full-grown lion that they would have never brought into their home has. The only difference is right now the cub isn't big enough to act on that nature. But what's going to happen is they play with the cub and they feed it and they, and they give it time. It's going to develop. It's going to grow muscles. It's going to get bigger. And they're going to see it every day, and they're going to be comfortable around it every day. And so they don't realize when that cub has grown into a lion. And they don't realize what that cub realizes when he sees, hey, I'm big enough to act on this nature now. And so then what happens? We see it on the news. Right before the news happens, the news story comes out, the lion attacks. And it does not only attack the person who brought it home. It attacks the person's children sometimes. It attacks the friends. It's a predator. It doesn't care who it attacks. It's just going to attack. And that's what Satan does. And that's how Satan uses these footholds in our lives. They start out small. They start out manageable. They're not big enough to harm us or anyone else, we don't think. But what Satan's doing is slowly, methodically, and consistently carving out a bigger hole. And because you see it every single day, you don't realize it. But he's getting a hold of you. And then one day, when he's big enough, he's going to destroy you. And he's going to destroy anyone who's close enough to you to where he can get to them as well. I didn't write this part in my sermon, but I was just thinking uh, this morning about it. And I thought I would tell you, my dad uh, loved him, but he was an alcoholic. He was a drug addict completely destroyed our family and he died when I was 13. 
He didn't become an alcoholic overnight. He didn't become a drug addict overnight. My dad made several decisions throughout years. He allowed things to remain in his life that destroyed us. Don't let it stay in your life. Affairs don't happen whenever someone just sees someone pretty in Walmart and decides they want to have an affair. No, it starts with several small decisions that people excuse away, allowing thoughts to remain longer than they should. And then one day, they do meet that person, and it spirals out of control. Satan isn't trying to just destroy you. He wants everyone. (laughs) So in addition to keeping these sins out of your life, Paul tells us in verses 7 and 8, don't even allow people who are living like this to be too close to you. Don't allow yourself to partner with these people. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness with them, being the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. Paul wrote something else similar to this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul's not telling us not to live within, within the darkness, not to live around unbelievers. But he is telling us, don't, don't allow yourself to be so close, so conjoined with unbelievers that when they make their sinful decisions that it affects you. Even more importantly, he's telling us don't be so attached to your unbelieving friends or partners or what have you that when they live their lives of immorality, it begins to erode your sense of morality. Don't allow their identity to be so close to yours so that it erodes who you believe you are and you begin to live like they, like they do. Don't do that. He's, he's warning us. So Paul's written these last few verses just as a warning that's meant to protect us from a very real enemy that seeks to devour us. And then the next few verses we're going to read, he's going to tell us, okay, so since you're not living like them, live like children of God. And he's going to give us a peek into what that looks like in verse 11. He says, take no fruit, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So again, he's saying, don't just live with passive faith and not taking part in sin. He's saying, live with active faith and be intentional about exposing it with the light of the gospel. So he's saying, as children of God, as ambassadors of Christ, we can't can't stand back. In our culture, it's, it's almost a cardinal sin to speak out against any sins that have a moral dimension to them, especially those that have taken on a political stance one way or another. I think about gay marriage and gender fluidity and abortion. We're not even supposed to say a word about them because they've become untouchable. But Paul tells us we can't be silent because people who are living like this are perishing. He's saying people who are living like this are living lives that are going to lead to destruction. And we can't just let that happen without trying to see some come to a knowledge of Christ. Matthew, 14, uh, Matthew 5, 14, and 15 record some of Jesus' words that are very similar to what Paul's trying to say here. He said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
Instead, they put it on a stand, and that light gives light to all of the house. Jesus was saying, what good is your light if it's remaining hidden? What good is your light to the rest of the world if it's not being shown into the darkness? It's, a, it's of no use. It's not any good to anyone else. And so continuing that train of thought, Paul writes verses 13 and 14, the last two we're going to look at today. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In his commentary on this verse, James Kaufman wrote, uh, he wrote this. He said, everything that the light reveals becomes light itself. Even the moon, which has no light in itself, reflects the light that is shown on it. This very thing had happened to the Christians in Ephesus who received this letter. And I would argue that the very same thing has happened to all of us who have believed in Jesus, who have been adopted as sons and daughters of, of God. Sometime in all of our lives, whether we were kids, whether we were adults, at some point, someone intentionally shed the light of the gospel onto our lives. And it hurt. It showed us our sin. It showed us where we, fall, where we fell short. But it also showed us our need for Jesus. And we did turn to him. And now because we did that, we exhibit that same light. We, hit, we carry that same light into the darkness, the light of the gospel. And when I say we, we shine our light into the darkness, I don't mean that we live as good people and that we call ourselves Christians. I mean that we proclaim the gospel. Christ, him crucified, his resurrection, his second coming. We proclaim the gospel. That is our light. Satan knows that he does not have a hold on us anymore. If we believed in Jesus, if we're children of God, Jesus says that no one can pluck us from God's hand. Satan knows that our eternities are sealed in Christ. But that doesn't mean that Satan does not have a purpose for your life still. He's just changed his purpose. Used to, his purpose was to keep you in darkness. Now his purpose is to keep you away from darkness. <laughs> Satan's purpose for your life now is to hide your light from his darkness so that his real estate on this world and into eternity remains as big as possible. So I want you to look at your life and, and see, are, is Satan being successful in his purpose for your life right now? When's the last time that you shared the gospel with someone who's not a believer? Everyone in your life is not a Christian, I promise. Everyone that you come in contact with, they're not all Christians. If we're not sharing the gospel, Satan is succeeding in his purpose for our lives. So let's shake loose of our lethargic natures. And let's live intentionally. Let's live with a purpose that God's given us. So as we begin to close, I've just got a few points of application. Uh, first, I want to speak to anyone who thinks that they heard that list of sins, those three categories of sin, and they realize that, you know what, that... that describes my life pretty well. Whether you've been in church your whole life or not, if, if you're looking at that list and you're seeing that maybe it's sexual immorality or maybe it's covetousness or maybe it's all of these impurities that you just can't shake loose of, I want to tell you that there's freedom to be found in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us that the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Along those same lines, Romans 6.16 tells us Paul wrote, do you not know 
that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, then you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life. Paul's saying you will be someone's slave. And so I'm begging you, don't offer yourselves as a sacrifice. Don't offer yourself as a willing servant to the lion that just seeks to devour you. Don't do that. Instead, offer yourself to the one who loved you so much that he gave himself so that you could live. Offer yourself to Jesus. He loves you. He came for you. There's freedom to be found in him. Or maybe you have done that. But maybe as you've listened to this and thought about your own life, you realize that your identity is not solely in the fact that you are a child of God. Maybe your identity is spread out amongst a lot of other things. And being a child of God is just one of those. That maybe being a child of God is maybe the identity that you'll have once you die. But, but this identity is an eternal identity. And because it's an eternal identity, it means it's an identity for right now. It's not just for when we die. It's for right now. And so if you haven't embraced that identity, then do it now. You're living on very, very, very shaky ground. Everything that you put your identity in other than this is going to be taken from you. And I also promise you that if you're not living in the proper identity, then you're not living for the proper purpose. So step into that identity. And finally, uh, there's some of you in here I know who you have stepped into that identity. You are rooted in that. And so I, I celebrate that with you. And I just I encourage you to stay steadfast in pursuing your purpose. Don't stop. Don't grow weary. Continue to act as an ambassador of Christ. Continue to shine your light into the darkness. Glorify God. See sinners saved. Don't stop. Fear's going to come. But it's okay. Because when fear comes, all you have to do is remind yourself and remind God, or and remind Satan, I'm sorry, that who your dad is. Your dad is the God of the universe. There is nothing to fear. I don't know who of you know Jared Harper. Uh, he's a friend of mine who's been coming to Harvest. Jared likes to say when he feels the enemy attacking him, he does two things first. First, he reminds himself who he is. He's a child of God. And second, he reminds Satan who he is. He's a defeated foe. He's got no power. He's got no authority. He can't do anything more than we allow him to do. Jared's living from his identity. He still feels fear, but he can overcome it because he knows who he is. He knows who Satan is. So guys, there's nothing to fear. There's everything to gain, and we've got a very, very short time here on earth. So let's live from that identity as children of God. Let's live for that purpose of being ambassadors of Christ to this lost world. All right? So what I'm about to do is I'm just going to pray for us, and then I'll lead us in communion, and we'll begin to wind down. Father God, I pray that this would be true. I pray that you would allow this word to resonate in our hearts. I pray that you would allow it to uh, stir our affections for you. God, where, where there are people who don't know you in here, who find, who find that their lives are described by your description of the sons of disobedience, God, I pray that those people uh, would place their faith in Jesus, that they would come to be adopted sons and daughters of, of you. But God, I also pray... Um, for the vast majority of us in here who I know have already done that. God, I pray that you would give us confidence in who we are. I pray that you would give us confidence in the purpose that you've given us. That purpose won't fail. God, you've gone before us. All we have to do is be 
obedient. God, we're not even, we're not responsible for producing the results that come from us being obedient. God, you produce results. All we have to do is we've got to walk in obedience. And so, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would uh, just give us faith that's not of ourselves. I pray that you would give us a desire for you. And God, I pray that you would show us your glory and just allow us to fall deeply and madly in love with you every single day uh, so that we can continue uh, living intentionally for this purpose. God, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.